I think that public consciousness about the problem of not letting housing to be built in cities is increasing, and that's creating opportunities for having debates about SB 827. The Overton window has certainly shifted in these conversations. I have some optimism, and I also think it's important to take a look at cities that aren't yet expensive, but that are growing, and look at what could be done to preserve the current development conditions there. Welcome to Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Just about everyone who lives in a metropolitan coastal area understands the value of affordable housing. It's a given that if you want the benefits that come with living near lots of people and businesses, you're going to have to pay more for your mortgage or rent. That might be most obviously true of California, where growing demand and stagnant supply have produced 10 of the 11 most expensive metropolitan areas in the country. The state is aware of the problem, and at least one potential response, California Senate Bill 827, would address it by limiting the ability of local governments to restrict housing supply. Today, our expert panel will get us started by talking about California and SB 827, and then we'll try to unpack what this means for the rest of the country. First up, we're joined by Vox.com senior correspondent and author of The Rent is Too Damn High, Matthew Iglesias. Welcome to the show, Matt. Glad to be here. Next, we have Emily Hamilton, state and local policy research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks, Chad. Great to be talking land use regulations. Last but certainly not least is Mercatus Center senior research fellow, Salim Firth. Welcome aboard, Salim. Thank you, Chad. Now the team is assembled, I want to see if I can get a volunteer to give me the 30-second explanation of why California in particular is struggling with soaring housing prices. I know that's an easy one. California has some of the most productive labor markets in the country, especially with San Francisco and San Jose. And it also offers a lot of geographic and climate amenities. So it's mostly just a place that a lot of people want to live. So is that it? We can just we can wrap things up. California is great. We all want to move there. And so housing's expensive. We're done. Nothing we can do about it. Well, so look, the, the obvious thing is in addition to a lot of demand for living in California, there's a Pacific Ocean on one side. Then the major metro areas, they tend to be close to other water features or mountains that are hard to build on. So there's a, a limited ability to sprawl out into the suburbs, which is the the classic way an American most American metro areas meet adequate housing supply as they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. San Francisco can't get a lot bigger, so it would have to grow taller, and it's not really allowed to do that. I want to jump on that because obviously policy can't do much about the Pacific Ocean, at least in the short term, and it can't do much about the mountain ranges in Southern California either. But it seems like that point about not being able to grow taller might be relevant. So what is this SB 827? Why is this something that at least a few people think might help California? So 827 is a proposal currently before the California Senate. It was brought by Scott Weiner, who's the state senator from San Francisco. What it would do is preempt local regulations. So where your city or town says the height limit here is uh, three stories, it would come in and say, no, actually, it's going to be something between four and eight stories, depending on the width of the street that it's facing, for blocks that are close to transit. So if you are within half a mile or a quarter mile of a transit station or a frequent bus line, then the the state is going to come in if this law passes and preempt local parking regulations. So, you know, minimum parking regulations gone, height limits lifted to a mid-rise level, and any kind of regulations that affect density like floor area limits 
also preempted. So that's a big deal. Cities are mostly really uncomfortable with this. It takes away one of their key tools for designing themselves. But my view, and, and I think this is shared by the others on the panel here, is that they've abused that. And, and that's the, a big reason why California is a lot less affordable, even than other big coastal cities. And it's worth saying this is in some ways a more radical proposal than I think it initially sounds to people, largely because of the bus element of it. When this sort of first came out, a number of California elected officials and people spoke very positively about it. And I think they changed their minds a little bit when they saw more exactly how sweeping it is, that the inclusion of of buses as high-frequency transit means that huge swaths of Los Angeles, San Francisco, Silicon Valley are covered by it, not just like the areas immediately around a rail transit station. I I think if you take this problem seriously and look at it the way I I think most of us on the panel do, like that is good. That is a good aspect (laughs) of this proposal. But it can sometimes, I, I think Senator Wiener, talks about it sometimes in a way that makes it sound a little bit more sort of modest common sense, like, well, we're going to build near the train stations, uh, which, for example, is, is what's done here in Arlington. And, and it's a big deal. And I think it has worked and has some real benefits for, for the place that we're in right now. But they are actually talking about something that is much more of a sweeping change for the state. One good aspect of that approach of doing the deregulation on the land use side before potential future transit development is that it allows the real estate market to drive where this housing is going to go and transit to follow rather than the Arlington model of building transit first and then deregulating land use, which is is good too, but doesn't have the advantage of allowing people to live where they want to based on other factors. Yeah, one of the problems that we've had, even in places that are growing like D.C., is that you end up with all of the growth gets kind of pushed into a few kind of neighborhoods that get marked as, okay, this place is crummy enough or, you know, kind of old post-industrial warehouses and, and parking lots. We'll use this to to deal with our, our rising demand. And so you get kind of massive change in one neighborhood and then that gets filled up and you move on to the next neighborhood. And in some cases, that's really displacing local residents. In a lot of cases, they choose places where nobody lives because then nobody votes against it. But I think a big part of the value of 827 is that because of the, the bus line aspect that Matt mentioned, it would actually spread that demand everywhere. Now, maybe there's enough housing demand in California to just – cause enormous change everywhere. But I, I doubt that. And I think it would be really nice to sort of see, oh, wow, we can add, you know, a couple thousand housing units a month to a county the size of Los Angeles. And it's not catastrophic anywhere. It's, you know, one apartment building here, a duplex there. And, you know, people's neighborhoods are evolving, not Revolutionizing. And this is important for California in particular, I think, because of the nature of the Silicon Valley job market and housing market that's close to San Francisco, but not in the city of San Francisco by any means. So that's where Apple is. That's where Facebook is. That's where Google is. These are some of the biggest, most important companies in the world. And you're you're talking about a, an area that doesn't have a city center at all. And that also doesn't have these kind of greenfield or brownfield development sites where you could say, okay, this is like warehouses that are no longer used or train tracks that have been abandoned or just some vacant land. They're, you know, regular, nice suburbs with single family homes, 
but a sort of really modest, normal, sort of middle-classy house will go for well over a million dollars there. And there's a there's a desperate need to specifically add housing in that area to prevent sort of unworkable transportation-type problems. And that means you really do need a different approach than what you've seen. You know, there are a number of successful growth models in America, but I think none of them are applicable to that actual situation that sort of plays out between San Francisco and San Jose. Only something along the lines of this that says, look, an existing single-family home neighborhood can get denser if that's where people want to live is going to alleviate the, the crunch around those big tech companies. I look at Silicon Valley as this first in history case of a world leading industry like this is you know london in 1750 with no new residents and the san jose metro area has actually declined as a share of the us population since 1992 slightly wow but it's growing at less than the national growth rate at the same time that it's led a a revolution in the world's biggest growth industry Normally, you'd get a leading industry and then all the kind of the spinoffs, the service industries, the things that grow up around it to serve it, the, the spinoffs. And you'd get a lot of people who aren't, you know, kind of elite programmers getting jobs and thriving and building lives there. People who are displaced from the places where factories have been shutting down ought to be able to move to where the biggest growth industry of our era is. And they just can't. The houses aren't there to take the people who lost jobs not necessarily in the mines in West Virginia or the factories in Detroit, but the people who served them, right? If you were a bank branch manager right. in Detroit and your bank branch got shut down, well, guess what? They need bank branch managers in San Jose, but on that salary, good luck. I want to linger on the displacement issue a little bit because I think one of the areas of pushback that people see with local land use regulation is almost the opposite, right? Where it's not just that we're eliminating certain types of displacement, but this fear that if you eliminate a height requirement, we're going to demolish the affordable housing that does exist and replace it with maybe really large high-rise luxury apartment condos that are really good for some segments of the population that don't really care about living in the suburbs and can afford that sort of urban or suburban lifestyle, but don't do anything to help the people that we traditionally think of as wanting to help with affordable housing. Is that a valid critique? I think that's a real problem with the current sort of urban redevelopment model that usually says, okay, we're going to isolate some particular area and say, okay, this is where the new development is going to go. Because, you know, what happens in a process like that is that the new development goes where there's the least political opposition. Sometimes that's a genuinely vacant area. But a lot of times, yes, like that is where sort of politically marginal people are finding housing that they can afford. They do get displaced from it. I see that as the problem with the status quo. Right, that if you allow housing to go where the demand is highest, the demand for housing is not highest in poor neighborhoods, right? Like, by definition, poor people wouldn't be living in those neighborhoods if they were the neighborhoods where the demand was high. When you relax the regulatory framework, if you do it in a principled way, you're going to get new building in the affluent neighborhoods and you're going to relieve some of the pressure on, on lower income ones. I think it's reasonable that people have who have lived through sort of generations of different urban renewal initiatives are suspicious of these kind of things. And it is important to see them undertaken in a rigorous kind of way. I do think this legislation and, and comparable ideas to preempt zoning in affluent areas is actually the solution to that problem, that what we're doing instead is what's causing the displacement. I agree that it's a problem. And I agree with Matt that this is a 
partial solution, probably not complete. I actually wonder if if people who are concerned about displacement would have fewer concerns if 827 sort of phased in so that it affected wealthy areas in the first year or two and then phased to the rest of the state. There's one market aspect where cheaper areas are, are easier to buy and demolish, right? So if you've got an old housing stock and something that's that's cheap and hasn't been invested in, then what you're destroying is of less value than if you buy a $3 million mansion that somebody just rebuilt. That's not huge. I mean, I think that can be overcome uh, where, where apartment prices are as high as they are. But there is one there is one market element where, you know, generally, at least within a neighborhood, the oldest and cheapest building is the one that you want to redevelop. And, you know, if that's an old paint store, then great. If that's, you know, persistently going to be poor people's houses, then you know, I understand that that's a legitimate displacement concern. We've never seen a large upzoning comparable to SB 827 in a high cost city. So it's hard to point people who have very legitimate concerns about displacement to see what happened here. And they didn't experience this massive displacement that you're concerned about. But we can look at less regulated cities like in Houston today, there isn't a big gentrification problem because, as Matt said, development tends to go to the neighborhoods that are already in high demand. And we can see the same thing if we look at U.S. cities before zoning was really limiting the supply of housing. Yeah, I mean, I think actually if you if you look at the, the Houston dynamic, I mean, if anything, you might raise the opposite concern, right? That yeah. a truly unconstrained market doesn't drive any investment into low-income areas. That, you know, there's right. there's some level of gentrification dynamic that is probably optimal uh, from the standpoint of, of people who are living in poor communities. I don't know that you can really optimize for it one way or the other. But I mean, what we do see in the laxer areas is that you have a sort of favored quarter of the city where more affluent people live, where things are usually investment has gone historically and more goes there because that's where most people want to live. That's where people want to locate their businesses. That's where decision makers in companies want to bring the jobs close to their own houses. And there's, I think, relatively little reason to think that what the market wants to do is take poor parts of Los Angeles, knock them all down and put apartments there. They want to take the West Side neighborhoods where the weather is better, where the commutes are shorter, where the stores are already nicer, and they want to pack more people into fancy houses there. Isn't that the weirdest thing about California, that the weather is different by neighborhood? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very weird. But it's, you know, I mean, look, obviously the weather is a big selling point of California. And then there are these, like, particularly in Southern California, little microclimates that make a big difference to these kinds of things. And it's like, if you could build more in Santa Monica, where you can walk to the beach and stuff like that, is I think pretty clearly like where a free market would locate extra housing, right? It's it's not a coincidence that those are the fancy parts of the city. Emily, to your point about, you know, not having seen an upzoning, that's true. But we have seen demand booms in places that were already built but then had this big demand surge. So one of Glazer's papers looks at New York City, Manhattan. This is Ed Glazer. Ed Glazer, Ed yeah. Glazer at Harvard, yeah. So there's this huge price boom in, in Manhattan, I don't know, maybe maybe mid-60s. And then it's followed very quickly by a huge boom in, in permitting, right? So we get to see how many permits the city issues. So there's a big price boom, and it takes a couple of years for the developers to get their act together. But then they do, and they build a whole ton of new housing, and there's a you know, whole vintage of apartment buildings. And this is a, you know, demonstrably a full city, if we want to use that phrase. And prices came back down. So there's you know, a temporary boom, first in prices, then in permits, and then you get back essentially to the pre-boom level of prices. 
And that's, you know, sort of kept people who could not afford New York today. They could afford it in the 70s because of this this building boom that took the edge off that that first demand boom. Interesting. Transportation has come up a couple of times, and Matt, you were just kind of talking about location as being relevant for commuting. I don't want us to gloss over that as we just think about where people are. I'm interested if you guys can talk a little bit about the transportation aspect of this. Obviously, the California bill would use transportation as sort of defining its its features. But how does a, a policy like this affect the way people get around as well? This is a reason, I think a not crazy reason, why people are often opposed to new development in their neighborhood. It's going to increase competition for street parking. It's going to increase the level of traffic on your neighborhood streets right there. You know, that's, a, I think, a major sort of driving factor for, for most individuals. The theory of this legislation is that by locating the new housing on frequent transit corridors, you to some extent mitigate that problem. I think it would be a little dishonest to try to assure people that like everybody in these new buildings is going to take the bus to work. Like the traffic is going to get worse if you add more housing there. And, you know, that's what eventually limits it, right? You might ask yourself, given that, you know, wages are high in the Bay Area and that the climate is nice and the food is good, you know, won't we have like a singularity and four billion people live there? And the reason is no, (laughs) right? Like there's a crowding effect and eventually it limits the amount of people who would want to live somewhere unless you get a New York, Paris level of a mass transit system, which I don't think they're going to pull off over there. You know, ideally, like people would also improve their transportation policies. But you can add housing without improving the transportation because the transportation becomes a a self-limiting constraint. In some senses, this is actually welfare for the transit system. I I, I don't know if you've looked at transit stats in the U.S., but transit is falling off a cliff all over America, even in New York and D.C., you know, sort of vintage markets. There's a big drop in the last year or two in, in transit use. And California's got, you know, kind of heavily subsidized, very much reliant on taxpayers, not great systems with these rising pension costs that are going to put them in a bind. And allowing them to get more customers could sort of salvage the whole system and keep it going as a going concern that isn't constantly going hat in hand to Sacramento. And it's good for, you know, it's kind of good for growth in all the ways that we've talked about previously. And in a sense, yes, the transit is good for the development, but the development's also really good for transit. And if you want transit in California to continue, you need to let them have customers. A lot of the coverage of the bill has been more focused on the aspects of allowing for more housing to be built. But I think the parking preemption is a really exciting yeah. aspect of it also. Donald Shoup is an economist at UCLA who's really dedicated his career to studying parking. And he finds that in Los Angeles, parking requirements add over $100,000 to the cost of building each new apartment unit. Wow. And developers certainly know that lots of people in California want to drive and want a place to store their cars, but not everyone does. And some people might be able to get by without a car or get by with fewer cars under this bill. And it gives them the freedom to choose housing that doesn't make them pay for these expensive parking requirements. Yeah, and I I think that's particularly important in Los Angeles where they've made – substantial investments in building out the LA metro system. It Also, it seems to have largely displaced bus ridership, so not worked out from a financing point of view as well as it could have. But part of the reason for that is that if to get a home in Los Angeles, you have to, at great cost, have parking spaces, then you're 
very likely to have a car. Once you have the car, like you should drive it, right? I mean, a hundred thousand dollar parking space plus a car is like a big investment in automobiles. And cars are really useful, right? I mean, the reason to not drive to work would be that you were sparing yourself the expense of having and maintaining a car and an expensive parking space, which there's a good rationale for in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is already actually a fairly dense metro area. If it got even denser to meet the housing demand, you know, people would say not because they're like eco-freaks who, who hate cars, <laughs> but it's it's just a trade-off, right? Like some people are going to say, look, I'm going to save the money and I'm going to take the bus to work. I'm going to ride the metro to work. I'm going to ride a bike. I mean, the weather's great. You know, if there's any place you have to wait outside 10 minutes for a bus. Like, you would want it to be Southern California, not Chicago. <laughs> That's fair. Um, you know, but it's like if you already have the car, you're going to drive the car, obviously. And that's why these parking requirements are, are so important, I think, because there's a huge chicken and egg issue with a lot of, I think, progressive thinking about this, where they want the transit system to be in place first. But realistically, you have to let people decide that they want to sort of save money, and then they become the constituency for the transit system that can maybe like manage it well, actually provide customers, the other things that, that make it sustainable. Emily and I come to this conversation from more on the, the political right, and you come from more on the political left, Matt. Can you explain to us why it seems so difficult for you know a very blue state <laughs> to get behind what sounds like, you know, so we're talking about making housing affordable for the poor, including, you know, working class people in, in the, the tech boom, transit, bicycling, making people independent of cars. Like, this doesn't sound like a hard sell when I think about my progressive friends. <laughs> Why is it so tough for California? I do think in defense of hypocritical progressive people, uh, <laughs> the is, you know, I think some of the sort of pro-development attitude in the Sun Belt is a little bit hypothetical, right? Like in practice, San Francisco is much denser than any southern Sunbelt cities, right? If you're talking about how constrained are they by regulation, yes, the constraint is tighter in California. But in terms of what have they actually allowed to transpire, it is denser there and particularly in the East Coast cities, much denser than, than in conservative Sunbelt ones. But, you know, people don't like change. Um, I, I think there was an old thinking on this, you know, associated with William Fischel and, and home voter hypothesis that people were just merely trying to maximize the value of their own homes. But you see, I think, an even stronger level of like knee-jerk, small-c conservatism than that, where people in affluent areas say that upzoning is going to lower their property values, but people in low-income areas say it's going to displace them. Those things obviously can't both be true simultaneously. But people live where they live. They've been there for a long time. They don't want to see it change. I was tweeting on, on my way in here about the transformation on the Orange Line mm -hmm. area here. It's very striking. It's visually striking because you can see the legacy of sort of low-density, strip-mall-style suburbs between the new developments here. And it, it looks weird. <laughs> right? Like, right. Uh, Americans are used to a certain visual landscape where there's the place where the city is and there's the place where the suburbs are. And like, they shouldn't mix, right? It's it's jarring to people. And I think people of all political proclivities almost just revolt against the idea that buildings might just not look like each other or the strip mall might become an apartment building and, and it would be odd. And, and, you know, we need to open our minds a little bit. 
That's interesting. So going back to something that you said right at the beginning of the podcast about building up versus building out. And it's true that the red cities, Sunbelt, are mostly building out. But I've actually just in the, the, my sort of day-to-day research here, I've been looking at growth in high-cost cities. And California really stands out in that unlike the rest of the high-cost cities in the U.S., its growth is weakest in high-density areas. Yeah. So if you look at Seattle, D.C., Miami, even Chicago, which has a declining population, and to a lesser extent Boston and New York, in already high-density areas is where they're adding often the most new housing, and they're adding at a much higher rate. So California's big cities are adding between 1.8 and 2.7% of the last – that's a six-year figure. So six years for your, your three biggest metro areas in, in uh, California, you're getting about 2% more housing units in the dense-ish. And this isn't like – we're not talking about like Manhattan or like downtown San Francisco, but like anything that you could remotely call urban. Very low growth. And so California is actually closer to the rest of the country in terms of building out right. in the suburbs where it's not adding – density is in the cities. I, that was that was something that I didn't know. I obviously, you know, I see what's happening in DC. Seattle's out of control. Seattle's in those kind of dense neighborhoods has added 15% uh, oh, wow. to its housing stock in 6 years. And we have had on on the east coast some cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia right. which have lost population even while adding housing in the sort of downtown cores. I I think Philadelphia maybe is is now actually growing, but yeah, I mean, and on the East Coast, in some other places, there has been a trend toward density, even in sort of troubled places. California has a somewhat unique, I don't know, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Is it local level environmentalism that people want to preserve the nature that's very close to them rather than the broader natural environment? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely some of it, right? I mean, the local Sierra Club chapter in California is very, very opposed to this legislation. And, you know, there's definitely a there's a contrast between a sort of nature enthusiast and a person who's concerned about air pollution, right? I mean, personally, I like I hate nature. I, I would never um, I would never like go hiking or something like that. Um, I, I will always fondly remember your piece where you wrote a very convincing argument against eating outside. Exactly. That was my my most dogmatic anti, anti-outdoors kind of thing. You know, I still though, like I care about climate change, right? And like the long-term viability of human civilization. Uh, but that is different from just liking a quaint natural environment and the, you know, the institutional legacy of the environmental movement is much more out of sort of park appreciators, right? And like, I'm into preserving natural landscapes. It's then evolved into what we consider modern pollution concerns. But there's oftentimes a, a tension between those ideas, right? A, um, a built out California would make a greener United States, but probably a less green literal California. I'll make another attempt to kind of sow division here because you all agree on so many things. And this gets back at what I think you were talking about earlier, Matt, where there is sometimes this surprise at a stark juxtaposition between low density and and high density building in areas where we've seen this kind of change happen. It's easy for us to maybe dismiss that as saying, oh, you're just kind of, you know, stuck in your ways, you know, you're you're used to certain things. Is there a value to sort of a, a zoning process or zoning laws and local land use regulations that do kind of preserve neighborhood character and, and focus on those kinds of things? Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of enthusiasm I mean, for that. <laughs> look, I, I, I think there, there's a place for this kind of thing, right? I mean, I don't think that it would be 
unreasonable to say, okay, there are some buildings that are worth preserving. Even there are some whole neighborhoods that are worth preserving. Just like we say, right, you're not going to, you know, turn the Grand Canyon into like a tacky mall. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a cost <laughs> to these things, right? Costs are sometimes worth paying. I think that you have to ask yourself, I think people have to ask themselves, look at a whole community, look at a whole state and be like, well, where are we? Right? Like, How serious is this, this kind of problem? Uh, if people want to look at Seattle, which is in fact adding a lot of housing and say, OK, there is one neighborhood in Seattle that I think is so lovely that we're going to keep it unchanged or we're going to say 5% of the buildings are the 5% awesomest buildings and we're going to save them. I mean, that those aren't crazy ideas per se. I think what's been interesting about the reaction to this proposal in California is that nobody seems to be – I mean, this is not going to pass, right? I mean, there's – nobody actually wants to upzone this radically. At the same time, nobody is saying, oh, actually, I think the status quo is fine. Right. right. And and that's the issue. It's like you have to do something if you're going to say that the status quo is bad. And in California, there's like overwhelming consensus that what they're doing isn't working. So they're going to have to do something else. So character just can't stay the same, right? So you can keep your physical character, but then your human character turns over completely over the course of 20 years and you replace all of the townies with techies, right? If you want to allow the people who have been living there for generations to stay living there even as demand rises, well, then you've got to f- radically change the way the neighborhood physically looks. And, and we just have to make these trade-offs. I don't think that those are valueless things. Like I, I don't take displacement unseriously. I value architecture and like streets that are pleasant to be on. But if you don't recognize the trade-offs and say, well, at a certain point when we're trading off 100% of this type of character against 0% of that type of character, you've gone too far. California has lots of lovely neighborhoods and lovely buildings, but giving the control to neighborhoods to say, we want to preserve our area just the way it is, is what leads to the displacement in less politically connected neighborhoods. So I think a historic preservation cap is an interesting idea that would require people to make hard trade-offs on which buildings actually need to be preserved. But just giving neighborhoods the control leads to the problems that we're having today. You might want to say that something like like uh, SB 287 is too broad brush, right? But the idea of centralizing the decision-making somewhat makes sense. I mean, I think if you were talking not about California, right? If you're talking about Paris, right? So they have a problem of affordability in Paris. They have a similar dynamic where the wages are much higher there than in other parts of France, where you have some declining industrial regions. It might be good to get more people into Paris to work for the big French companies, provide services, etc. At the same time, Paris isn't just like a pretty city, but tourism to Paris specifically is a huge economic engine for France. And it would be, I think, obviously a blunder for the French government to like totally ruin that in pursuit of, you know, some more bank branch managers. So to think strategically about like, what are we trying to do? Like, where do we want more houses and offices to go is a perfectly reasonable sort of idea there. But you don't want the decision to be made by everyone just about, well, what's going to happen on my block, right? You need to be thinking, what's the right choice here? for France or or for the region or or something grander than that, when you do what we often do in the United States and you let everybody make a decision about what's best for their hyper-local kind of area, you just – you overweight the interests 
of the people who happen to live right there versus everybody else. There's an appropriate scale for, for these kinds of things. We make decisions about different policy areas at different kinds of levels. We, for historically contingent reasons, have decided that housing policy should be made at a super duper duper low level, and it, it leads to a dysfunctional outcome. And, and I don't think recognizing that means that the decision should never be to preserve something. There's an interesting probably disagreement between us here because – you know, on the one hand, yes, as you get more and more local, you get this, well, I don't care what happens outside. And in any case, my little neighborhood can't change the housing dynamics of the state. But once you take it all the way to the limit and say, well, we're just going to let each individual homeowner decide what to do. Well, then you actually solve the problem because then people will say, well, I get the full benefits of being able to, to upzone myself. And in places where even where the citizens are very anti-growth, so Austin, Texas, right, is, has sort of viciously anti-growth, partly because they have actually had enormous growth rates compared to most of the rest of the country. They've actually dealt with really rapid increase in population and congestion. And, you know, the whole spirit of Austin is I came here 15 years ago and no one else should be allowed <laughs> right. to. Right. I came here to get away from Dallas, right? right. Not to yeah. make it become right. the second Dallas. So, you know, they all they all get together and, and yell about development, but they can't do much about it because the laws in Texas just give, you know, individual property owners an enormous right to do with, uh, do what they want with their own areas. And, you know, there's like six blocks that are historically preserved and that's probably all that's needed because Austin was puny until, you know, 1960 or whatever. And so the result is that housing stays quite cheap there. It's actually not much more expensive to buy a house in Austin than in a declining place like Detroit or Cleveland. Now, you've got some real problems it's where- It's funny how expensive people in Texas think Austin is. <laughs> yeah, my, no, my, my, my in-laws live outside of San Antonio and they're like, Austin's nice, but oh my God, the prices. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a joke to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and they have, they have real problems. So like they won't build highways. So that's what the Austinians do to- Interesting. Screw the newcomers is that like, well, you can build that subdivision out there, but we are just never going to approve- Good luck navigating um, the local roads. A highway to, to accommodate the new suburb. So this, you know, there's things that have to be planned, right? You can't, you can't say, well, we're just going to allow uh, a transit system to to kind of evolve naturally and also get modern speeds. So, you know, the, the sort of the anti-planning mindset only gets you so far. But on the affordability, especially if you have an existing infrastructure in place that's going to carry all these people, individual control as opposed to centralized can actually get you a solution to the problem. And centralized control works really well unless everybody all agrees, right? So if these same Californians who are all voting to not upzone their neighborhoods, if they get together at the state level and they say, well, we also don't want to upzone the whole state, all you've done is kind of kick the problem upstairs. So you have to you have to sort of really believe that people are going to correctly kind of solve this math problem of, well, when I upzone the state, I'm not really upzoning my neighborhood, which I care about. I'm upzoning all these other ones. And I think that works in a pure rationality context, but I don't know if behavioral biases will, will let that survive. I think we have to see, right? I mean, the jury, I think, to some extent is out still on Texas, which has grown enormously. But, you know, Austin is still not a big city, right? It's it's not even close to being the biggest city in Texas, right? And they are not, in fact, building a transportation infrastructure that supports growth, right? As you say, somewhat deliberately, they are like trying to sabotage the construction of what should be a, an emerging real big metro area over there. I'm going to be interested to see how that plays out over the next sort of generation, right? I mean, do they reach a political equilibrium that 
allows for for something better than a mi- weird mix of like uncontrolled sprawl with then no support for actually bringing more people in there. Houston has been an interesting case where they have done some changes to allow for more infill, but they still people sometimes say to me they're like, "Matt, you must love Houston." Um although even there the parking requirements bite quite a bit and you create an odd form of density where you have a lot of houses and a lot of people and they all have cars and then because they all have cars and parking lots there's no sort of transportation there's not a lot of things you can walk to in your neighborhood and it's it's a little bit of a unpleasant kind of place that has then given lacks of regulation a bad name in in a lot of people's minds and i i do hope that they they come to something better there i mean i hope california does too <laughs> I will say my one experience in Houston was a very rude awakening to what they call feeder roads, which I was totally, as a Kentucky native, ignorant of. These are these small roads that run alongside their major highways. And if you don't know how those entrance, those on-ramps and exit ramps work, uh, you can find yourself (laughs) in the wrong place very quickly in Houston. So I'm a little sympathetic. I've only got one question left. So I say that to give you all a warning that if there's a topic I haven't hit yet, this is a great time to ignore what I actually ask and bridge to whatever your point is that you'd like to make. It's always easy in policy to talk about the problems. Uh, It sounds like you guys are not super optimistic that this particular Senate bill in California is going to pass, which means it won't be a model for all these other cities to follow. What does the policy path forward look like? What are the we talked about Houston and Arlington? What are the positive reform opportunities for cities that find themselves struggling to say, how do we solve the affordable housing problem or the transit congestion problems in our city? I actually think things have turned in the US. So the fact that we're talking about this on a lot of people in the in the sort of intellectual space are, and the fact that we can point to places like Seattle and Austin and New York and uh, Miami that are doing a lot of infill development, that didn't happen, right? I think much in the 80s and 90s, there were some problems with cities. People didn't necessarily want to be there. Uh, So it was a demand problem. But even where prices were high, these neighborhoods that were in the city were just kind of left alone. And so I think we are seeing a partial solution. Here's the big one in California from last year is they got the right to build affordable dwelling units on – virtually every single family home. So I think 4,000 permits were filed in Los Angeles in the first year. That's going to continue. And if you sort of take, you know, Los Angeles, right? So it's a city of like a million single family homes that all look, you know, very, very similar. If every one of those gets the right to double in size or nearly double in size by adding a 1,200 square foot accessory dwelling unit, that's an enormous amount of infill density that no one had really contemplated. And it will sort of organically cluster where parking is less tight or transit options exist. And, you know, you might say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent this dwelling unit, but I'm going to put a stipulation that you can't bring your car because I don't have space in my driveway for you. And that's something a landlord can do. Th- that's a really interesting way forward. And I think there are going to be some things like that. It's not going to be uh, – those aren't magic bullets, right? But I actually think that we have turned the corner. I agree. I think that public consciousness about the problem of not letting housing to be built in cities is is increasing, and that's creating opportunities for having debates about like SB 827, even if it doesn't pass. Although I'm not completely pessimistic that <laughs> some version of it might not pass. Okay, so there's, <laughs> some, there's some, some chance there. There's going to be one transit chance. station that they upset. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the Overton window has certainly shifted in these 
conversations. And like Salim, I, I have some optimism. And I also think it's important to take a look at cities that aren't yet expensive, but that are growing and look at what could be done to preserve the current development conditions there. I would be be very pessimistic about this specific legislation, but I, I think that is the right political path forward. I mean, I started by noting that this is a very radical proposal, and I think that that is a good idea. Um, in, in Washington, D.C., our former planning director, uh, Harry Tregening, she set about to do, I think, a very useful effort at upzoning, but she kind of pre-compromised to what she thought would be the most potent objections to the idea and put forward an agenda that didn't totally fit the principles that she had articulated. But what happened when that came out was, you know, people still raised objections. There were further compromises in the process. And what wound up being done in the new plan was just not that big of a departure from the status quo. I, I think it's right to say, look, if the principle-based solution here is that we should drastically upzone a huge swath of the state. You put that out there, you let people object, you wind up, you know, either something compromised, watered down passes, or you force people to cough up proposals of their own. Because what is fascinating about California is that you could imagine a world in which people say, look, this is fine. Like, I have my house. It's really nice. I don't want anything to change. I think everything is fine. But that's just not what any elected officials or any citizens there are saying. Right. Everybody is saying that they have a problem. So now you have a proposal to change it. It's, it's very drastic. It's very radical. A lot of people don't want it. But if you can have a conversation where everyone's like, well, we're going to do something, something will wind up getting done. This ADU bill, it, weirdly more sweeping than I would have thought anything could be. Possibly didn't even realize how sweeping it was. But it goes to show that when issue is on the policy agenda, like something constructive tends to get done. And that's where we are now. Well, I think with that, despite the fact that we're obviously just scratching the surface on this issue, and I think we almost had buried in there other entire podcasts that could have been done on federalism and labor force mobility. So I almost want to bring you guys back on and, and lock you in here for another couple of hours. But I, I will let you go for your all's sake and for our listeners' sake. Thank you. Um, I would like to to wrap up. You guys have been prolific on this issue and we'll link to a lot of the work that you've done. Salim and Emily, I know you just released a policy brief on this issue in particular. Matt, I know you've written particularly on the, the transit effects and the results and what SB 827 or, or policies like it might do to uh, to car and transit use. So I just want to give our listeners an opportunity to keep up with your work. So I'm just going to kind of go around the table and ask if you guys, uh, whether it's a website that you want to promote or a Twitter account or handle you want to give our listeners, but where's the easiest place for folks to go to, to keep up with what you're you're working on the, the topic? And, and I'll start with you, Matt. You should definitely read my tweets. I'm uh, Matt Iglesias there and uh, got links to everything. Yeah, similarly, uh, Twitter's the best place to reach me. It's going to be at Salim Firth. I'm at EBW Hamilton, and I write for the blog Market Urbanism. Great. And as always, I'm eager to hear from you as well. Please email me your questions, comments, complaints, or episode ideas at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu or find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese. Thank you all. 